You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? In this edition, we investigate the music of Anthony Coleman, composer, keyboardist, and miner of cultural traditions from Harlem to the Balkans, and whose solos, bands, ensemble works, and collaborative improvisations have influenced and enriched the New York experimental music scene for over three decades. We'll hear Anthony Coleman's reflections on all of this, punctuated by excerpts from his roulette performances dating from 1986 to the present. This is Anthony Coleman. My name is Anthony Coleman. I wake up every morning with the existential question, am I a composer, 
improviser or am I an improviser composer? And in the distance and difference between these two things lies all the conundrums of the last 40 years. I'm from New York City. I'm a total New York City product. I went to school at the High School of Music and Art before it was called LaGuardia. Then I went to New England Conservatory of Music. And from the time I was 12 years old, I studied piano with Jackie Byron, which is a very formative aspect of my everything. One thing that people talk about Jackie Byron a lot was his eclecticism and his ability to move through styles at the drop of a hat. Everything from ragtime and stride to avant-garde. And this absolutely marked me, but not in the most obvious of ways. I didn't even realize it marked me so much until decades later. Of course, everything I studied at New England Conservatory had a huge impact on me too. And going to Yale School of Music for my master's degree marked me as well, but in many different ways. And later I took a summer seminar with Maurizio Cago, and that marked me in really different ways. But after all of this, I moved back to New York and right away working at the Soho Music Gallery, the record store in Soho, that sort of was an epicenter of a lot of the scene at that time. I met very quickly Glenn Branca and John Zorn and started working with them rather than continuing and to be in academia, which seemed like a crazy choice at the time, but turned out to be the best choice. And who knew, but you know, some little devil spoke into my ear and made me make that choice, which seemed almost self-destructive at the time, but actually was really good.
a lot of my projects for a certain period were involved with some thing that revolved around new music in what was called the downtown scene, but I had my own kind of fascinations. I spent a lot of the 80s going back and forth between the ex-Yugoslavia and New York, and so Balkan culture, I would say even more than Balkan music, but of course Balkan music really impacted me. But when later in the 90s there was like this Balkan music revival, my projects didn't fit very neatly into that because they were much more existential, experiential. They really weren't involved with kind of like finding this borderline between improvised music and Balkan music. They were much more to do with like, like narratives. That was my project by night and that, that lasted for a few years from like 87 to 92. And um, then my project Self Haters, again, it was this same kind of thing because it came out of the radical Jewish culture movement, but at the same time, it sat very uncomfortably within that movement because it was born out of the idea that like looking at a lot of abstract art, especially a lot of abstract visual art, and a lot of trips, for example, to the Jewish Museum, and realizing that a lot of the times the Jewish Museum exhibits very abstract things, that their relationship to anything that would, one would call Jewish is not peripheral, but you have to do work to see how these signifiers are there. And the music that I was experiencing a lot of the time that was connected to radical Jewish culture, the signifiers were very evident. They were connected to tropes that we could right away hear how they were connected to klezmer and stuff like that, like, like scales and stuff that was pretty evident. When I listened to that work, I, I still can see what I was after. Um, we made two records. I still feel pretty strongly about them because I can hear that kind of atomization of signifiers in that.
But then I had like other projects, like the, my duo with Roy Nathanson that traveled a lot, made a bunch of records. My trio, Sephardic Tinge, and also same, it was much more sort of had an easier relationship to things. I was doing a lot of work as a side person, especially with John Zorn and with Mark Rebo. somebody who composes a lot of chamber music and that continues up to now. I just wrote a piece for Korean traditional ensemble that was performed in, in Korea just a month ago. And I guess another big part of my thinking is to confuse these two domains if I can confuse them between the work I do as like a person who writes for ensembles with which I perform and more like a autonomous composer with capital C that's writing for people who are more like autonomous performers. I love the idea of confusing that relation. It doesn't always work, but it's something I really like. I have a record that's coming out in a couple of months with an ensemble from Vienna called Studio Dan, and that's what I kind of did with them because I performed with them, and the pieces are somewhat collaborative in their nature. They involve a certain amount of improvising, but I would, I don't, I prefer in those pieces to talk more about like a certain amount of performer decisions or performer choice that rather than to speak of improvisation with a capital I, I guess it was really a big change once I started teaching, which I became much more marked than I had been in the past by the work of people like Cornelius Cardew and uh, 
Christian Wolf and some of their pieces, which in, which involve a lot of performer choice without really being necessarily improvisation with a capital I. I'm probably not the best analyst of my own work, but nobody else has really become a really good one either, so what can I say? One of the things I did during the pandemic was post a bunch of videos on um, on Facebook just to try to keep having some kind of audience, you know? So that, like, I know Cecil Taylor, one of the things he wrote about a lot in, like, some of his interviews from the 60s was just a need to practice as though he was playing for an audience. And I definitely took that as a thing. But, of course, now with the internet it's a lot easier to recreate that situation so but what i wanted to say was like somebody wrote and said this is great you should make another solo record to which i responded i've made three solo records in the last three years which i actually have um one came out in slovenia it doesn't mean you can't get it it's on Bandcamp. one came out in lithuania you can get that one on Bandcamp too and one came out in Quebec and you can also get that one on Bandcamp yeah I just meant a solo Mac record like whatever he meant but of course I knew I knew what he, he wanted to step back but we all know that records don't mean the same thing
thanks to my old friend Elliot Sharp, I got an email from guys in Czech Republic who were doing a series of pieces for a virtuoso pianist performing on a broken piano. This is so after my own heart, I can't even tell you. I mean, tailor-made for me. So that's coming up. I'm really excited about that. It's going to come out on a record. Another record that will be on Bandcamp, you know, whatever. But I care. If you don't care, it doesn't matter. I care. And then I'm also working on a project where I'm leaving on Wednesday for the Ukraine for the recomposition and rethinking through of uh, jazz opera that was written in 1928 that we're going to rethink, remake, and will be performed in both Ukraine and in New York at La Mama. So all these things are actually happening. It feels like nothing is happening, but it's not actually true. It's just the way things are now. The paradigm is very different. There's no, like we used to go to Europe and tour 23 concerts in a month, you know? Then you knew things were happening. You woke up in the morning after having slept for three hours and had to get on a train and travel for eight hours. When you do that, you know things are happening. So Roulette, I mean, I'll never forget the first concert I played at Roulette because I was so new in the scene. I had just played a few concerts. You know, I had played with, like I said, I had my first concert with John Zorn in the summer of 1979 just kind of like threw me into a whole new world. And I, through that, not necessarily that concert, but through those experiences, I met Charles Noyes. And he asked me to play in a trio with Jim Katzen uh, in a group called the Palindromes. That was a free improvising trio. And, um, you know, Charles Noyes always played with a very clear sense of what it was he was doing. I am not sure if I really knew what I was doing, but that was always my feeling through most of the 80s, to be honest. Like, I was trying to use everything that I knew from everywhere to try to figure out what was going on. In a sense, I was a very, very educated tourist because I was just kind of checking everything out, but I was checking everything out while doing. As the 80s turned into the 90s, one thing that was new for us all was to play in places that felt like clubs. That was something we hadn't done, Knitting Factory and then later Tonic. So roulette became very important as being much more like when you presented work, present much more like in a concert environment. 
you present a very different kind of work from what you're presenting. Like, try to not only present your band projects in Roulette, or even if you do present your band projects, present them with it. I always felt more like when Duke Ellington did his Carnegie Hall concerts, you know? Like, okay, he played his band repertoire, but he always wrote like a special suite for the Carnegie Hall concert. So it was more like that, you know? And that's what Roulette has always been. And there it is. Reflections of composer-keyboardist Anthony Coleman with samples of his roulette performances recorded over three decades. This podcast is made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum. Please subscribe. This is David Weinstein at the desk. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.